Hello and a very warm welcome to the second episode of The Drinks Break. Once again, I'm Charlie and I'm joined by my co-host Mark. Let's get straight into the subjects this week. We're going to be focusing on the Champions League and Europa League completions with their finals and obviously the latest news in the football world. So let's get straight into the Champions League. Now, it's been a busy couple of weeks in the Champions League, but we finally found our two finalists in Bayern Munich and PSG. Now, let's get an insight, Mark. How do you see this final panning out? Well, I think out of all the teams that were still remaining, I think you've probably got two, you've probably got the two, arguably the two best teams, based on the fact that they are the, the champions of Germany and the champions of France. And I don't think... I was talking to someone about this the other day and saying that I think that's the way the Champions Leagues should go, really. You want to see the very best of the respective countries in the final. And based on the performances during these one-legged shootouts, effectively, that they've been, um, I think Bayern Munich have been by far the best team. Um, they've, they've really dominated against uh, Barcelona and Lyon over the last couple of weeks. Um, PSG, I've not seen as much of them um, in, in all due respect, but they have performed very well, obviously, and, and beaten some very good teams to get there. And you would expect that with, with the quality of player that they've got. When it comes down to the final, you know, it's, it's, it's a different, different question, isn't it? You don't know what you're going to expect. But based on what I've seen, I would, I would think that Bayern Munich have that edge of, of just a natural free-flowing play that they've got and, and they, their ability to score goals. But, you know, we'll see when it comes down to it. This might become an unpopular opinion, but in my opinion, I believe that the one-legged ties in this summer have been great for football. I agree. You know, Completely. you see often in knockout football in the Champions League, you know, you've got someone small going to a bigger team and they'll try and nick an away goal and obviously they'll go home in the next leg trying to defend, defend, defend. Now, I think in this sort of aspect, both teams have to go for it. Mm. So we're seeing much more open games. Yep. We're seeing many more goals. And we're seeing many more individual performances. Now, I don't think it will happen again unless we have this sort of situation again next season with the pandemic. Mm. But I believe maybe this whole Champions League format is worth considering in the long term. Yeah, I agree. Um, I think you see it when you, you, know, you look at the major world competitions, you know, the World Cup, European Championships, uh, African Cup of Nations, and so on and so forth, all do that just one-legged process. And, and I think it's a more fair reflection just to see who is the superior team on the day rather than having the one game. Okay, you know what the situation is. You know what you've got to do when you then go to the other ground in the second leg. And it becomes a whole different tactical affair. But if you're just playing for knowing you need to win on that day then it makes it a more compelling, more competitive game. I definitely game. agree with that. And yeah. I think that's what we've seen, okay? Uh, maybe not competitive, I suppose, based on the score lines for Bayern Munich in particular, but it has made it more interesting from the start. And teams like Munich and PSG have gone out there from the get-go and performed to the best of their abilities and scored goals. And that wouldn't have necessarily happened, I think, in a two-legged affair. But yeah, going back to that point... And obviously last week's game where we saw Bayern Munich thrash Barcelona 8-2, you wouldn't see that in a two-legged tie. No, probably not. I no, mean, Bayern not, not being in an the, individual game of a two-legged tie. Being the home time, team, sorry, 
they might have won three one four nil something mm. like that, but we're never going to see eight two in a in a first leg tie. Are no, we? I don't think so. So I think maybe in years to come it's worth considering that as an option I think the one thing that's going to let that down and probably a lot of people would think the same is the financial aspect and the fact that UEFA probably want to gain as much revenue as they possibly can and the best possible way of doing that is two-legged affairs for most of the tournament potentially so but given the fact that the seasons will start later now. Mm. Obviously, I don't know what's happening in other countries regarding Christmas breaks because I know Germany and other countries have breaks at Christmas. There's going to be a lot of fixture build-up. Yeah. And obviously, with Euro 2021 coming next season as well, there's going to be a lot of football to be played. And with two-legged ties coming, it could be quite a bit of an inconvenience. Yeah, I think that's. I think England is sort of going in the making steps in the right direction in that sense that we're trying to stop that congestion aren't we you know obviously the fixtures have just come out this week and the plans for the the league cup whereas most people would have said probably scrap the league cup in general this season you know doing the first four rounds all in september getting those out of the way that's going to clear up a lot of time so we're making steps in the right direction whether other countries would be able to do that i don't know but i think I could be wrong in this, but I think the FA have scrapped FA Cup replays this season, is that right? Uh, I think so, yeah, I think you're right. Which is I think is that's a, a step thing. in the right direction too. I think I think FA Cups can just go the same principle as the Cups and, and have extra time and and um and penalties. But I think again it's a revenue thing for me. And the only downside to it obviously is let's just say come January and fans are allowed back in and, you know, away fans are as well. If you get the likes of someone in League Two, let's say for someone like Southend facing Man United at Old Trafford, True. there's a lot of revenue to be made there, but they won't be able to pick up on missing it. Missing out, unfortunately, yeah. So anyway, let's talk about the final itself, which is played tomorrow night. This is Saturday afternoon. How do you see it going? Obviously, you predicted Bayern, but how do you think the game will be played as a whole? Um... I think it's going to very much go, again, a case of these two teams are very forward-thinking. They've got a lot of compelling stars on that pitch that are all going to want to score goals. You're talking about you know, Lewandowski and Muller versus Neymar and Mbappe. And that's just the start. There are other names in there that you could easily mention. It's going to be a very wide-open affair. I think watching some of the Champions League games back and forth, lots of spaces and pockets become available on that pitch and I think that's going to continue and you're going to see that a lot tomorrow I reckon um, it might be a more tight knit in that the, the score line is could be closer or you could see it you could see a lot of goals I don't know but it's going to be one of two ways I think either it's either going to be a very tight cagey 1-0 2-1 affair or you could have a, a I don't know a 4-2 4-3 something like that it's, it's going to be difficult to call until you actually start to see them on the day and how they approach the game in the first five, ten minutes. Yeah, I'd, I'd probably agree with that. And I mean, given the fact that they both won convincingly 3 0 in the week, I think there's going to be plenty of goals in that game. Mm. But obviously, the defences have been very good as well. It's going to be a very funny final, I think. Yeah. But I think whatever happens, it's going to be a very good one to watch. I think so. Yeah, I think it will be compelling and, and exactly what you would want to see from what is the richest prize in, in Europe, I think it's the kind of game that you're going to want to see. So, looking forward to it. It'll be a good one to watch. I mean, for me personally, I've got this funny feeling that we might see PSG nick it. Really? Uh, yeah, I think 
Bayern have been fantastic, but I don't think at the same time they've really been given a proper game. Mm. I could be wrong in saying that. Obviously, they faced Chelsea a couple of weeks ago, not yeah. convincingly. Barcelona didn't give them a proper game. And obviously, Lyon gave them a good game in the first 15 minutes, but overall, they just weren't up to the levels of what Bayern are. Yeah. And obviously, PSG now, they want to become the big name in European football, mm. which is why, I, I don't know why, I've got this feeling that we're going to see Mbappe or Neymar really show up on mm. the big stage. So I'm going to say a PSG victory. Interesting. It's not very often that you go into a game where you're thinking that PSG are really the underdogs going into it. That might be, you may agree or disagree, but I think based on the, the, the quarterfinals and the semifinals and the way Bayern Munich have handled those sides, um, yeah, to call PSG an underdog is possibly a fair reflection. I don't know. You know, given the fact that the French league is often regarded as a farms league by yeah, many yeah, people, in, you know. Yeah, and the fact the that they are the underdogs probably going into this, obviously by the bookmakers as well, you know, I think it's quite um, a big thing to happen, I think. Mm. I think it's going to be down to seeing, you know, because you've got a lot of natural goal scorers on there. Obviously, Lewandowski has had a superb season. You know, Neymar and Mbappe very capable of scoring goals for PSG. It's going to be a case of who's got their shooting boots on and who's going to be the more clinical, I think. Now, I want to talk about Robert Lewandowski, as you've just mentioned. Now, do you think he is the best striker in the world on form at the moment? At the moment, yeah, without a doubt for me. I think his stats have proved that to be the case. You know, what is it, 56 goals, I think it was, at the end of, after the Lyon game. I think it was 56 that he scored this season, which is, you know, absolutely phenomenal. And there aren't many players in the world who are going to be able to say that they could score that many. I think 15 of those have come in the Champions League, which are against some of the biggest, you know, that's that's against some of the biggest teams in the world, and he's been capable of doing that. Is absolutely outstanding. Um, So, yeah, I think for me... At this moment in time, if you said who is the best striker in the world, I think Lewandowski would certainly be that one. I think it's got to the stage now where, let's just say, for example, you haven't watched the game and you check the results an hour or two later on and you've seen Bayern have won convincingly. And if you don't see Lewandowski on the goal-scoring chart, you're very surprised, aren't you? It's a shock. Yeah, it is a shock. Which is why I think, obviously, the news has come out that the Ballon d'Or has been scrapped for this season. Mm. Now, he was surely a contender given on his record. Oh, without a doubt. I think he's been really hard done by. Mm. But obviously, with the pandemic, you know, I don't think FIFA or whoever the organisers are think it's very fair that someone should get it. But, you know, the way this guy has been, he is up there probably in the top five best players in the world currently as well, as well as being the best striker in the world, I believe. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, like you say, I think it's very unfair that he hasn't had an opportunity. I'm not saying he would have won the Ballon d'Or, but he would have certainly been up there. And it's unfair that he, for me personally, that he hasn't had that opportunity. I do understand maybe from FIFA's perspective that it wouldn't have been a fair reflection based on how this season's obviously gone uh, with the pandemic, that it wouldn't have been a fair reflection to give it to anyone. Um, but he certainly would have been up there with... with your Ronaldo's and your Messi for this season and whether he would have done it if he had done it it would have been phenomenal really we often talk about superstars in football and I think PSG have one on their hands not in Neymar but in the youngster Kylian Mbappe Mm. now obviously highly regarded 
big transfer fee, obviously from Monaco a couple of seasons ago. Is he the best player in the world behind Cristiano Ronaldo and Lionel Messi? That's tough. That's tough, especially when you we just had the conversation about Lewandowski, and then you you bring Mbappe into the mix. I mean, you certainly are tomorrow going to see two of the best, I think, in the world at the moment. Um, what you're going to see more of, you're going to see multiple players who could be in that bracket. I think he's very much handled that expectation of the transfer fee um, this season and has been remarkable for, for PSG. And alongside the likes of Neymar, he's, he is only going to get better, I think, being in that in the presence of a player like Neymar who has been around for many years and, and done it all. I think he's going to only continue to grow as a player. He may not be the best player in the world at the moment, but I certainly think, give it a couple of years, you know, he may even move on from PSG, I don't know, but depending on if, if PSG were to win tomorrow and maybe continue to grow in European dominance with Mbappe there, then maybe you start to talk about him as a Messi-Ronaldo player. But I think because of, as you said, as we said before, being the Farmers League, maybe it's difficult to uh, to consider him there. But I think in time he will be. He's been with Real Madrid many a time, so exactly. maybe one day that'll happen. Yeah. I think one thing we have overlooked about this final is, we're just talking about Mbappe, but he'll be sitting on the right-hand side of the front three and he'll be going up against Alfonso Davis. Mm. Now, I'm not being funny. It's like having two Bugatti Veyrons against each other, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah, you know, you've much. got two rapid players there. That's yeah. going to be some duel, isn't it? That is going to be a battle, yeah. I've Honestly, watching Alfonso Davis in the quarterfinals and semifinals, he has been my like standout player. I think he's been many per- many a person's standout player. He's just been impeccable. His skill... His pace down that, that flank is, is superb. I don't think I've seen anyone like that for a number of years. I can't even think... I, there probably isn't a name that I could think of who you could compare him to. Maybe Jordi Alba, previous seasons, even Ashley Cole. Perhaps, but that was perhaps. a, that was a long still, time ago. Yeah, yeah. No, I still think, yeah, I think they're, they're a different style of player. I think he's a different breed on his own in that he has the, the skill and the ability of a winger as well as a defensive awareness of a fullback. Yeah, he I think that, that left wing back position was made for players like Davis, mm. weren't they? So that's the Champions League final for tomorrow covered. Now let's talk about the big final in the Europa League that happened last night. It was a 3 2 victory for Sevilla against the Giants of Inter Milan. Now, personally for me, I couldn't watch it, uh, but I've just seen the highlights beforehand. Now, it's another dream season for Sevilla, isn't it? And the Europa League. Yeah. They've just got a true love going on, haven't they? They really do, yeah. They they somehow always seem to make it pay off in the Europa League, don't they? Um, considering it was uh, only a few years ago now. I, was, I looked at a stat and said that the last eight or nine have been won by... The last eight or nine Europa Leagues have been won by Spanish and English teams. And then you've got a group of those being won by Sevilla. Three years under... Unai Emery um, and that shows how com- how much they care about winning this tournament and it's been a great season all round for them um, in finishing fourth in, in the league as well now they're going to get Champions League football next season and they've conquered one of 
Italy's biggest clubs, you know, or one of the biggest clubs in the world as well. Um, watching the highlights, you know, I think we said that it was a a very open game uh, between the two sides. I don't know if you would agree. Um, Judging was, by the highlights, it certainly yeah, was, wasn't it? It seemed like plenty of opportunities back and forth between the two sides. A bit scrappy at times and cagey and fiery with some of the challenges that were going in and, and the referee felt a lot of the pressure. But they seemed to, to just have enough on the day, literally just enough with a, a little bit of luck with their, their winning goal. Um, I think we mentioned it while we were talking about it during the highlights, but the tactical decision that Sevilla made in uh, Luke de Jong, I don't know what you think about it, but Luke de Jong obviously has been on and off for Sevilla this season and he's not really scored a lot of goals, six goals in 35 games in La Liga. He'd only scored one goal in the Europa League so far this season. Decided to play him today, or yesterday I should say, Friday night, and he goes and pops up with two goals in the first half. Is that, I mean, is that a bit of luck or is that a tactical genius? I don't know. Well, I think you'd have to ask the manager himself that. <laughs> but I think, obviously, putting Dijon in there was a great thing. Mm. You know, he popped up with two goals. Obviously, he got the winner against Manchester United in the semi-final. So, I think he had every right to play him. Mm. I think maybe it was a bit tactical. Obviously, we spoke earlier in the week about the final. And obviously, I said... If a Campos didn't play, who has been Sevilla's best player arguably this yeah. season, they lose a big player in there and probably their best attacking option. Mm. But Dijon's gone in there, scored two goals, and yeah, I probably could say it's been a tactical masterclass by the manager. You know, I think us English fans obviously remember him, maybe not, but briefly from his time in Newcastle, yeah. where let's face it, he wasn't very good was he no maybe, I mean, maybe I, didn't get the opportunities he deserved but i was going back over his stats and it was uh, 12 appearances for newcastle zero goals i think that's what it says doesn't it <laughs> maybe it was one of them ones where he just didn't get played enough or it was injury prone but I, I don't really remember much about him myself but judging by the stats you just said he probably wasn't as good but you know he's gone to Sevilla and he's won in the europa league yeah he has effectively, effectively on this day. Yeah. You can't argue with that. You know, he's, he's done a great job. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Luke de Jong's two goals coming either side of uh, an opener from Romelu Lukaku, fifth-minute penalty, and then a Diego Godin uh, header, making it 2-2 before half-time. And then the winner coming about 15 minutes from time, Diego Carlos with a what, what looked like a wonderful overhead kick that was just going wide of the target and was uh, poked in by... Romelu Lukaku. Now, interesting, really, considering that the the penalty within the first five minutes of the game was a Diego Carlos foul on Romelu Lukaku um, that Diego Carlos got booked for. Now, on commentary, they suggested maybe it should have been a red. I'm wondering what your thought is on that, because obviously, you know, if he had been sent off, it would have changed the complexion of the game. And what, what happened within the final 15 minutes, the winning goal, wouldn't have happened quite the same way. So I wonder what your take is on it. Did you think it was a red or do you think it was fair? Like we say, you know, the challenge itself actually started outside of the box. Mm. So, you know, you see a lot of referees these days deciding not to give the red card. But obviously we noticed during that passage of play, when Lukaku gets into the area, Carlos has a swipe at the back of his leg. Yeah. Now... If that's anywhere on the pitch, most of the time now that'll get VAR'd. Yeah. And we potentially see a red card happen there. Mm. So 
I don't know what the ref's seen there. Whether it's, whether they think it's intentional, I suppose. I don't know. It looked a bit nasty, to be it honest. Is, yeah, it looks rash. You wouldn't. I mean, I know me and you wouldn't want that if we were on the football pitch to to take place, and we'd probably be calling for a red. But yeah, it's difficult to to call whether it was an intentional foul or not in that sense. But look, he went um, zero to hero, didn't he? Yeah, effectively. You know, he got booked for it. Give away a penalty in the opening four minutes, and already Sevilla have got a big task to come back from mm. and he pops up 15 minutes from time with a very red kick and at the expense of Lukaku putting in for him as well exactly I think that's the unfortunate thing isn't it if it was any other player that's deflected it in it might be a different story but obviously Romelu Lukaku big name in English football as well and, and the, the reputation that he's got and then he goes and ends up being the one who probably wanted the ground to eat him up in that final 15 minutes with the goal but um Unlucky, really, for Inter Milan, I think. They, they played well and they were very unfortunate. We'll talk about the losers, I think, and we'll talk about Inter in this game. Obviously, for them, Europa League final, second in Serie A as well. They finished a point behind Juventus in the end, very nearly getting that title. I think they lost it with a couple of games to go, really, but they came very, very close. Do you see this as sort of a return of Inter Milan to being considered a giant power, considering where they were years ago, Champions League winners under Mourinho, hasn't quite happened the last few years. Do you consider this sort of that start to a return to to being a, a major power? I don't see why you can't. You know, I think if you'd have asked most Inter Milan fans before the start of the season, you'd become runners in the runners up in the Europa League final, and you'd come second behind Juventus by a point. They'd have probably beat your arm off. Hmm. You know, they are a giant powerhouse of Italian football and always have been and probably always will be. But, you know, Conte went in there first season. All right, he didn't get no silverware. But well, I think he's done a fantastic yeah, job. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you look what he's done to Lukaku. Mm. He went from probably being a laughable player in the Premier League. I've always rated him myself. Yeah. But, you know, a lot of people are saying, oh, you know, he's not as good as he used to be. But I, I believed, and I said this before the start of the season, he will go to Serie A and tear it up. Mm. And he has. He has done. Yeah, and you look at his performances in the last couple of days. What was that? I think he got two against Shakhtar the other night, I think it was. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Another one in the final last mm. night. So he's there. The yeah. goals are there. He's firing. He's got the players around him. He's got Martinez as a partnership up front. You know, I think he's had a very good season. And going back to your question... Not trying to avoid it, <laughs> but I think Inter Milan have had a successful season. Mm. But now they need to build on it. Yeah. Obviously, losing by a point in the end, I think it looked a bit closer than it was. Juventus won the title a good couple of games yeah, ago, they and then they just before. eased off, didn't they? Yeah. I think in the end, yeah. obviously waiting for the Champions League themselves. But I think they are returning to the greats. But I think next season they're going to have to win something, mm. whether it's the. Serie A title or the Italian Cup or at least you know get to another final they're going to have to win something though to be that powerhouse again Yeah, that's because probably... Juventus are just going to win everything in Italian competitions yeah well that's probably my, my final question really on this point is do you see them being title contenders next season do you see them taking Juventus to the to the wire they're going to need a couple of players I think mm. you know I think every team needs to strengthen but I think one or two more players in there then why not? Mm. You know, you see bits and pieces about uncertainty at 
Juventus with Andrew Pirlo taking charge now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's going to like players. He's not going to like players. So they're going to have a bit of a reshuffle. That could work against them. Yeah. So Inter really have to, you know, go from that and build on. Yeah. Why not? Why can't they win it? No, very true. It's going to be interesting seeing the the experience of an Antonio Conte into Milan versus the the you know novice like uh, novice may be a harsh word, but obviously not as experienced Andrea Perlo in a manager position leading a, a star-studded Juventus team. It's going to be interesting. Going back to the Europa League final, firstly, I think it's fair to say that final probably a very good advert for a, a tournament that people don't consider to be as big and wonderful as of, as the Champions League obviously it does get looked at a bit as a bit of a you know you weren't good enough for top four yeah. or whatever but I think we've got to look at the teams in the final Sevilla and Inter Milan always mostly top four in their own divisions yeah. so I think you can call it a success yeah. back in March we didn't even know if we were going to have a final exactly. or even continue the competition yeah. but you know you've got to Give credit to UEFA and all the teams for taking part and what's been a very good end of season tournament. Agreed. So let's uh, move on to our next point. Now, funny enough, I had this written down for a long time. Obviously, I'm sat of a Charlton fan, my co-host. We're not biased in any means. <laughs> but I think it's only fair that we get to know what's going on behind the scenes at Charlton. Now, I've just flipped on Sky Sports. And it seems that the Charlton fans have entered the stadium and the director's box. Yes, yeah. So, big news. Obviously, like we said, we're recording this on Saturday afternoon. Um, And from a Charlton fan's perspective, all the big news this morning has been regarding uh, a number of fans who had arranged a protest to be outside the ground from from 12 o'clock. That was just, that was going to take place. It was going to be a protest outside the ground from 12 till 1. And it's turned into a bit of a an invasion, really, of, of our beloved ground of the valley that we have said we, we don't want to move from and that we want back, basically. We want it to be our own. But, I mean, we know that, that things have been a bit tumultuous over the last few weeks uh, or months or years, in fact, of, of our ownership. And, um, and this today is just, uh, you know, probably the tip of the iceberg, really. We've had enough. And, uh, and we're going to try and reclaim what is ours. I think it's fair to say it's a, a very strong protest, isn't it? I think so, yeah. I mean, I'd love to know how they got in there. I don't, I don't know how. They've, they've found a way to, to sneak in and, and have, have stood their ground and stay in. But I think, you know, some of the protests that we have done over the last few years have, have been real statements of, of intent. Um, that not many other clubs have certainly not seen many other clubs do and I think this one is is absolutely huge there's definitely a big dislike for the current owners now I think what it's fair to say is we all see a lot of reports in the media about what's going on but what is the current situation now so effectively at the moment we are currently under ownership by a group called East Street Investments or ESI for those who don't know Um, we are at the moment in our second incarnation of ESI, it was taken over in January by a Saudi businessman by the name of Tahun Nima and a businessman from England under the name of Matt Southall. Obviously, I've, uh, you know, might be familiar to some people for exploits elsewhere. Um, and they have had a lot of problems 
with each other. They've been at loggerheads with one another, aired their dirty washing out on social media and things, and it it became a bit too much. And eventually, they've they've sold the sold their shares in East Street Investments to other businessmen, um, and effectively are nothing to do with the club at this point. Really, um, we're currently now under the ownership of Paul Elliott, who's a businessman who was last linked with Barry. Yeah, Barry, who we all know what happened there uh, last season, um, and Chris Farnell, who was also also played his part, um, and they've all undergone fit and proper ownership tests. I can't remember if that's the exact name, but that's what we you know it's, it's effectively known as, and um, they both failed basically. So we're under the ownership of people that have failed ownership tests, which is a bit ludicrous, really, and um, Farnell has since been terminated um elliot is still there at this point sort of pumping a bit of money into the club to keep us afloat but um you know it is a case of trying to drive him out and we have other potential investors who are interested uh peter varney and andrew barkley were ones who were originally keen they've since pulled out because of another prospective owner thomas sangard who has come in um, a Danish investor, and he looks to be the front runner to potentially take over the club at this point, which hopefully arrives sooner or later, as the club is currently under transfer embargo and potential administration, and you know links of of even going further than that. Given what you said about the Danish investor, Thomas Sandegard, is it? Yeah. Obviously, if he doesn't come in. And we've seen this previously with clubs like Berry. Would Charlton be at risk of going into extinction? Uh, I'm not sure. Um, a lot of reports and a lot of, you know, whenever I've been looking at different sources who have had something to say on it, they've kind of very much said that extinction would be highly unlikely, okay. effectively. Um, that would be really, you know... A, over the top perhaps to to think that that's going to happen administration is very much potentially going to take place um if if sandgar wasn't to come in um which would obviously mean a points deduction effectively and you know difficulties going into league one next season which is also you know cause a problem really being relegated from a championship to league one so that's very much a, a risk um i think yeah i think extinction is is very much a, a highly unlikely uh, final avenue from what I hear but it doesn't mean that it couldn't happen I suppose I'm not going to be biased against you obviously being a rival club but <laughs> obviously the whispers about Thomas Sandegard are now becoming quite in the media Yeah, we've seen much. obviously him on telly mm-hmm. on radio uh, obviously he's been pretty open about he wants to buy the club yeah. and obviously everything that goes with it now Obviously, we saw Matt Southall come into the club in January, I think it was. Yeah. Obviously, I've got many Charlton fan friends, and obviously I read a lot of social media um, about different things. When Southall came into the club, there was a lot of opening arms for him, I think, Mm. and people were very taken in by him. Now, that turned in to be a bit of a fraudulent act, wasn't Mm. it? Yeah. I think... The problem with Sandergaard is he's been very open, but do you think we could see something like what happened with Southall again? Or do you think 
he's a lot different and actually wants to care about the club. I think he wants to care about the club. It comes across that way that he wants to care about the club. But I think he he is very aware, and I think a lot of fans are very aware of, of the, the trust needs to be restored with whoever was to take over, whether it was him or someone else. Even if it was Peter Varney, I think to an extent the trust would have to be there. I know he's... You know, he, he knows the club and has been a lot more linked to the club over the, the, the years. But I think there there is a build-up of trust that we require. And I think Sangard was very public in saying that it might it would probably take a good year or two, really, to, to get that trust back from the fans. Because we have been thrown around and, and put through so much over the past, not just the past year, but the past five years, really, with Roland de Chatelet prior to to Southall and Nima, there were a lot of people who weren't 100% sure about Southall when he came in as well. You know, I remember my, my dad was very much of a, I, I don't trust him, I'm not sure what to expect of, of Southall. But because he said all the right things, then you all of a sudden believe that, that he's going to be your, your lord and saviour. But that's what, I suppose that's what a businessman is very good at doing. They know to say the right things. And then when it all falls apart, then then that's a different situation. But from from the talks, from what you hear from Sangard, I think there is a level of, you know, I do want to salvage this club, I do want to save it and and restore everything that we have witnessed. Um, but yeah, it's going to take time. It's very much going to take time. Whoever takes over is going to have a big drop on my hands anyway. I think. Mm. But Definitely. I think going back onto Sangard, like I say. If he does take over, then there's going to be a lot of trust there. He needs to earn back and obviously get the fans on side because, you know, you hear reports of people not going to games anymore, people not spending money at the club anymore. Mm-hmm. And it's all revenue the club's losing. It's the club yeah. who suffers in the end, realistically. Exactly, yeah. Obviously, the, the owners lose out as well, but I ultimately, it comes down to the football team. Yeah, it only puts us in a worse direction. But I think he knows you know, what the what the right steps would be or certain things that he could do to restore the club, such as, obviously, removing transfer embargoes, being able to recruit some players and, and build up a bit of a squad would be a good step. Um, things like the training ground and the stadium, potentially buying that in the future as well. But there's lots of different things that he could do and they would be considered, you know, good selling points for, for his future as the owner if he was to do it you just covered my next question about the <laughs> training ground and the current stadium being owned Sorry, by Roland de Chatelet <laughs> but obviously going on to Sandergaard now this could be quite a controversial question but do you think he really wants the club or he's seen the club in a bad state of affairs and thought I can get something cheap there or not it's an interesting one that, think well, about it yeah that is yeah that's <laughs> I don't know where to go with that. Um, very, I think, no, I think he is passionate about the club, and he's very much made it public that he's passionate about football. I think every, almost every sentence says something about. Listen, I love the sport. I love football. And that, yeah, that's always a positive. That's always a good thing. Um, I think he does care, and I think he has seen the state of affairs, and you know he has made it very public about the discussions that he's had with numbers, you know, number of people in and around the team in and around the team and, and his discussions with Barney and uh, Barkley in the past you know so I do think there is a level of care whether he knows exactly how to run a football club would be a different thing to consider um, and the amount of money that it's going to take to to get this club 
up and running again and restore it to even a level of security. But, you know, we can only wait and see, you know. There's still a lot that needs to be done. It's still in the process of, of this potential takeover. So we shall see, you know. It's, it's all the case of it is what it is at the moment, I think. That's what all Charlton fans are thinking. Final question on the subject of Charlton. Obviously, the season is three weeks away today. Obviously, it starts in two weeks in the Carabao Cup. The embargo is there, but what's the latest on the transfers, ins and outs? So, we are able to make transfers. Um, that, that can happen. Uh, we are under a salary cap of around about 1,300 a week. Whereas League One has now been capped to, to 2,000 a week. That's just come into, into light recently. But we can only do 1,300, which, you know, is ludicrous compared to sort of even League Two and, and non-League football clubs that can supposedly pay more than that to players. So it's made it very awkward to try and get some players in. We fortunately got Connor Washington and Alex Gilby in last week before the cap took place. Um, but I think for any future reports or any future um, players that are going to come in then it's going to be very very difficult and we're going to certainly be looking at, at players sort of lower than than where we currently are we're currently just looking sorry we've got we have got sky sports news on in the background and they are showing the reports we've just seen some images of what's uh, taken place today down at the ground i do want to say actually i can say very well done to everyone who did take part in the uh, in the protests you know it might not have been the route that i would have gone down but very well done to everyone who did take part in that and good on them i think it shows the passion in the club yeah. maybe it could have been done other ways but you know they know what they want and fair play to them yeah very well done right we're going to move on anyway we're going to move away from our local clubs we're going to move on to a couple of transfer dealings that have taken place over the last few days or transfer rumors and reports that are taking place over the last few days and we'll start with one in the Premier League we'll start for a, an interesting one if you're a, a Tottenham fan um, and that is the signing of Joe Hart of course the former England international uh, Premier League winner with Manchester City uh, recently uh, a Burnley player his part his last club being Burnley um, and he's also played at West Ham as well but he is now a Tottenham player um, and it's interesting to see what is going to take place there? I would imagine, I think we would all expect, it's a case of Joe Hart's going to sit in as a number two for Hugo Lloris, wouldn't you think? Potentially so, but then I think you forget that Tottenham's other goalkeeper is Pablo Gazaniga, mm. who's also the number two. So maybe number three. I think Joe Hart, personally, has been brought in by Mourinho to become maybe that ambassador, sort of mentor for the younger players. Mm. You look at Tottenham, they've got a lot of young players, the likes of Sessignon, Skip, who's just gone out on loan. They've got a few young players, and maybe he's the experienced head to get these players going. Yeah, perhaps so. I mean, he's 33 years old, is, is Joe Hart, which is, is still, you know, it's not, it's not massively old for a, a goalkeeper, is it? You know, considering many goalkeepers have gone on to their, their 40s. But like you say, it might be that it is that level of experience that, that Jose would potentially want in one of his teams you know it's it's an interesting one do you see obviously that might be to start filling up positions now do you then see Tottenham's transfer 
dealings maybe starting to grow from that now and maybe looking at a higher level of player? I think so, definitely. I think I saw the schedule they have for um, September. I think it was actually Kane's schedule. And he has two games in the Nations League for England, followed by the second round of the Europa League qualifying, followed by a couple of league fixtures. Now, with that sort of pressure on one player and all them fixtures, they're going to need to get some players through the door. Yeah. But obviously, going back to Hart's signing, I personally think Hart has been a really good signing. I mean, whether he's number two or number three, personally, I think he might be number two just for his experience. Mm. You know, they're going to be playing in Europe. And over previous seasons, we've seen the number one, Hugo Lloris, become quite injury-prone, I'd say. You know, he yeah. has missed a few games in the past. So obviously, <clears> they're going to need a good backup. Whether it's Hart or Gatsanigi that goes in there, there's mm. going to be games to be played. And I think Mourinho will tinker a bit. Yeah, He's not exactly frightened to tinker about with his players. And obviously, you know, Tottenham are going to be involved in three cup competitions. Yeah. So maybe... You know, Gazzanini might play in the Carabao Cup, Hart might play in the FA Cup, but then they might mix it up in the Europa League. There's going to be games to play for both goalkeepers yeah. behind Maurice there. Yeah, I do. I do agree that you know, like you say, Mourinho is very much someone who's very willing to to swap and rotate his players, and he's going to have to this season with the amount of games to be played. Larice has become yeah a little bit unreliable at times due to injuries, but I do think Gazzaniga. In my opinion, I think he stepped up whenever he plays. So I think it's going to be interesting to see what he, what his opinion is, what Mourinho's opinion is of whether it's going to be Gazaniga or or Hart in certain positions. But that's the first bit of business for Tottenham. Let me we'll just see. Uh, sorry, there was a point on that you made about obviously Tottenham's transfers, and I think the interesting thing as I spoke about Harry Kane and his schedule. Now Tottenham have got no backup strikers here. Very true. If he gets injured. They're in a lot of problems, I think. Mm. Which is why I'm quite interested that they loaned out the youngster Troy Parrott to my club, Millwall. Yeah, very true. Yeah. A bright future ahead of him. Maybe could have been a good backup to be on the bench or around the first team, but he's been loaned out. So, if he gets injured, is it going to be Bergvine? Is it going to be Son? Is it going to be Lucas Moura that goes out top? They're going to need probably another striker in that position. Yeah, potentially so. Yeah, yeah sorry. Back to you, point. Mark. Yeah. It is a good point, no, because obviously, yeah, Troy Parrott would have been someone who, who may have been relied on, but, you know, he's obviously only made, he's made two appearances for Tottenham in his career and never had any other professional football elsewhere at another club. So he's got his first line move at, at your side, Millwall, which would be interesting. So maybe maybe another striker would need to, to come in for Tottenham. We shall see. Uh, another bit of business then, we're going to move over to the South Coast. We're going to move down to Brighton, uh, one of their players who has been linked with Leeds United, and that is a defender of theirs who was on loan, and that is Ben White. Now, recently, and a couple of bids have gone in for Ben White from Leeds, newly promoted Premier League side, of course. Uh, around about £20 million, I think the first bid was. That got moved up to about 22 for the second. Both those bids got rejected. Third bid's come in for... £25 million pounds for Ben White. Obviously, someone who is known by Leeds and was part of a very successful campaign. Do you think that would be a good bit of business if they can eventually get him in next season? No, oh, they're very insistent, aren't they? They are. They're determined. They've got to admire Leeds and Marcelo Bielsa. They know who they want mm. and they're not going to back down, I don't think. Yeah. That's got to mean that Bielsa believes that he would be able to do a job in the Premier I think League. he's a player that they admire and I think you know I think he was in the PFA Championship team of the year last year mm. in a team that got promoted as champion so I think understandably he's a player that they 
they want them. I think they will sign in the end, yeah. however much it costs them to pay. You know, I think he's got a bright future. I think I've seen Chelsea, Liverpool all touted for him for him as well. Yeah. So whatever happens, he's going to be a very wanted man, whether it's this season, next season. But, you know, I think... The problem is, though, is that the transfer fee. The man's played one season in Championship and somehow he's rated at £30 million. Do does, you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, does that just show how ludicrous the transfer market has got over the last few years in terms of the player value that, that goes around? You know. Like I say, for a man that's played a good amount of games in the Championship, though, is £30 million really a good I price? I wouldn't agree, no, not personally, but I mean... There's also other things to consider. He is, you know, he's 22 years old, so he's he's still got a lot of his career ahead of him. Um, you know, if if it was to be uh, that, say he was to go, Leeds were able to stay up. I'm sure Leeds would be thinking in a couple of years' time if they stayed in the Premier League with him in their defence, there's going to be a profit to be made, isn't there? If he was to go on to say a a Man United or a Chelsea in the future. Is that an interest? You know, it could be. It could be that they get double their money. You Potentially don't know. so, but I think this is going to be a long-term sign. And I think if he signs, I actually think Ben White could stay at Leeds for the rest of his career. You reckon? That's a big pump. Becomes a Leeds hero. Yeah, possibly. Why not? Yeah. I you suppose. know, you don't really see many one-club players these days. I'm not, I don't know if he's actually played for Brighton yet. Has he made a single I'm not players? sure. No, I haven't. I'm not too sure. I don't think there would be... If if it was, I don't think there'd be much game time, you know, with the likes of, of uh, Lewis Duncan and Shane Duffy ahead of him. But obviously, like we say, Bielsa seems to, to very much like him and, and, and is determined to get him in. Do you see much other transfer business taking place for Leeds this season in order to try and remain in the Premier League? I think Leeds have got an adequate squad. Mm. But whether it's enough to stay up, I don't know. But I think they will. You know, Marso... Marcelo Bielsa is a great manager. Yeah. And I think his first season in the Premier League is want to stay in the league. I think that's their aim for the season. But I think the one thing Leeds need is a striker. Don't get me wrong, Patrick Bamford is a good striker. But I don't think he's Premier League quality. And no. they're going to need goals from somewhere. You can't rely on your wingers or your midfielders to get your goals. They're going to need a front man. Yeah. Now, maybe if they don't sign Ben White... Could they invest that money into a striker? It's potential, isn't it? I've seen yeah. in the last couple of days, I think with Leon Bailey from Bayer Leverkusen, now that's another winger. Mm. They're going to need to start looking at front options, I think. Yeah. But obviously, the funny thing I want to talk to you about is obviously this whole impending transfer of Ben White. Don't you think Brighton should probably play him in their first team? <laughs> well, yeah, I suppose that's, that's an interesting thought, isn't it? That he could well do. You know, obviously he's proven how capable he is in the championship, and maybe that, you know, maybe it is a case of Brighton are wanting to give him a go. Maybe that's why they are being so stubborn with with this value and trying to not sell him because they see him as someone who could potentially get in their team. You know, they've got Duffy, they've got Dunk. I don't think Duffy is. I think he's getting towards late. 20s, yeah, I think I, I read know, that he's possibly on the move in the next couple of weeks. So potentially that's where the replacement comes in, and you know Brighton would rather see Dunk and White together as a combined pair, and maybe that's their way of progressing themselves into the Premier League because they don't want to be, you know, they don't want to be relegation contenders every season. They want to start moving up and being a more competitive side, and 
you know, a high quality defender who, as we say, twenty two years old, that would be a good start. And it's effectively like signing a new player in that case because he hasn't played. I, I did just quickly take a look. He hasn't played a game yet for Brighton this season. At Possible all. England future player. Potentially, yeah. If you know, I think given time, uh, if he gets a, a, if he does stay with Brighton or he stays with Leeds and he's playing week in week out, then yeah, I could easily see him being called up. You know, Southgate might give him a go one time in, in one of the squads. Yeah, I mean, obviously with Euros coming up, and if he got a move to Leeds and he's mm. been playing first team football and they're playing well, yeah, we know Southgate isn't frightened of picking players from other teams. Yeah. So, you know, maybe there's a position to fill there, and obviously with the uncertainty of what's happening at the moment with Harry Maguire, which we won't discuss, mm. there could be a possible vacancy in that yeah. central defensive role. And I think it would be a very good thing, really, if you're seeing White and Dunk together as an English pairing at the heart of Brighton's defence. You know, I know Dunk hasn't really ever had that breakthrough with England, but you've got two players there that are going to be hungry and wanting to play for England in the future, aren't you, if, if that's to be the case? Obviously, as well, Dunk will help White as he goes on in the future. And I think yeah. it's, Brighton have got a very good player on their hands. And I'd also like to say, I think, that their youth system has been very good. You know seen a lot of their youngsters go out on loan and they've got a really good setup down there Definitely. I think so anyway that is the end of our second podcast which will be up very soon thank you for listening and thanks again Mark for joining me right, thank you been a pleasure it's been a good one isn't it yeah good fun always enjoy it so um, we aren't sure when we'll next podcast but we will let you know so from us here at the drinks break take care And see you soon. See ya.